Well, good evening. Good to see a few people online there tonight, just a handful with us uh, so far, but uh, we have me and Gracie here tonight, and we love our Sunday nights together. Uh, we love, we started this several months ago, just me and Gracie in here, and we're still doing it. Probably do this on Sunday nights for a couple, or at least a couple more weeks until we get through all this, and maybe we can get back to some normalcy, but I, I love our Sunday night services. I love being able to come back and spend a full day in, in the Lord's house and studying His Word. So that's what we're going to do tonight. And if you have your Bibles, which I hope you do, sitting there at home or wherever you are, you have your Bibles, uh, and get ready to open them and turn them to Judges chapter 4. And we're going to try to do the impossible tonight. Uh, I tried a few weeks ago to preach an entire sermon in an hour, in under an hour, and we couldn't accomplish that. And tonight I want to try to wrap my arms around, if I can, if it's possible, if you'd pray for me, I want to try to preach two chapters tonight. I want Judges 4. And Judges 5, that's where we're going to be tonight, and back in our series on Judges, as we've been looking at when a nation forgets God or abandons God and how God judges them, I think if we are looking at our own time, we're living these chapters every day when you open an, uh, open your phone up and you start to read the news, it's like something out of Judges. So that's why we've been studying it, we've been trying to learn from the mistakes that they made and see what God's doing in their time. So that's what we're doing uh, tonight, we're going to look at tonight, this passage is full of action, it's full of twists and full of turns, and we're going to do our best to look at it and see what God's doing here. I, I want to go behind the scenes, I want to go behind the curtain, because you're going to see all kinds of different things going on in these two chapters, but I want to look and see what is God up to in, in this nation at this time, and hopefully answer the same question for us. What is God doing right now? in our nation, in our world, and what we're facing today. We want to see what God is up to. And that's the title of the sermon tonight. What is God up to? And we're going to do our best to see, maybe, what God is doing, not only in this time, but in our time as well. So if you have your Bibles, I'm not going to read all uh, 55 verses, two chapters to you right now, but I do want to start off by reading the first three verses to you, and just to give you an idea of what, why we're doing chapter 4 and 5. It's Chapter 4 is the story we want to tell tonight, and then chapter 5 will be a song about the story. Uh, so that's kind of why these two go together, so we can cover them both at one time. But I want to answer that question, what's God up to? What's God doing in our nation right now? And we need to answer that question. We need to know. Uh, we may not see uh, visibly what God is up to, but I think if we really look uh, in, into His Word, we can see what God is up to. So let me read again the first three verses of chapter 4 of Judges, and we'll look at what's God up to. Judges chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This will be a familiar theme that we've seen in the book of Judges so far, and it's a theme that we see in our own nation, in our own world. This is where we continually go. Verse 1, it says, And the children of Israel again... And you can underline that word. It's going to keep, it's going to keep occurring. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain of whose host was Sisera, which dwelled in Harasheth of the Gentiles. And the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, for he had 900 chariots of iron. When I say 900 chariots of iron, I want you to go ahead and, and highlight that and underline that. That's a very key phrase there. This army that God handed Israel over to was very, very mighty and powerful. 900 chariots of iron would be like saying they, they had 900 tanks or 900 helicopters. They, they were very powerful. And 20 years, he mightily, you see that word there, oppressed the children of Israel. So that's just kind of a, a starting point for us as we jump into this passage. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll do our best to see what's God up to. 
Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it, and that is what we rely on. That's what we depend on. That's what we preach here. We said this morning that the church should be, your word says, the pillar and ground of truth. A place where truth is, a place where truth is, is believed, a place where truth is preached, a place where truth is stood for, a place where people will know in that place we'll find truth. So God, I pray that as we preach this tonight, it'll be true. And God, that you would bless it and that you would use it to show us, to open our eyes to what you're doing in our nation, what you're doing in our lives. So God, show us that tonight. Help us to see it very clearly. Not just what you're doing here in Israel, but what you're doing now in America. So God, help us to see what you are up to. We ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we've all asked that question at some point in our life. Where is God? Or what's God doing? Or what's God up to? You could look at your life. You can look around at, at what's going on, maybe in your certain situation, maybe in your family, and in your health, and in your life, and you cannot see God. You don't, you don't, you, you look around and say, where are you, God? I don't see what you're doing. I don't see how you're working. I, I don't, I don't feel your presence. I don't know that you're, that you're here with me. I need to know what you're up to. What are you doing right now? That, 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 that thought has crossed your mind in your life. God, what are you doing right now in my life? What are you doing in my family? What are you doing with my children? What are you doing in our church? But I think the common question that's being asked is, is going outside the, the, the personal and going into the, the national. If I had a dime for every time somebody's asked me in the past few months, what's God doing, Josh? I, I would be a rich man. But people have continually come to me and they've said, Josh, what's God doing? Josh, what's God up to? Josh, where is God? What, what, what's going on right now? We, we need to know. We need to see what God is doing. Can you tell me? And, and I continually take them to a quote that I heard by John Piper, a, a very uh, famous preacher in, in our time. And this is what he said. He said, and this, I tell this to everybody who asks me. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you are probably aware of two or three of those things. And I want to say that again because I want you to hear that. In our own personal lives, he, John Piper says, God is always doing 10,000 things in our life. And we are probably aware of two or three of those things. So if God is doing 10,000 things in our personal lives, then God is active and working in our national life. And we are probably aware of just a handful of things that our God is doing. But God is always active. God is always at work. He's doing more than we could ever imagine. Our God is not a lazy God. He's not a lackadaisical God. He's not sitting back watching as things are happening in America today. Our God is actively, hands-on, involved and doing things, not only in our lives, not only in the church, but He's doing things in our nation. That's who our God is. He's an active God. And He doesn't have to give us daily briefings. We used to sit and watch it as, as a family every evening. We'd get our dinner together, we'd gather around the couch, we'd turn on Donald Trump, and we'd watch his daily briefings. And he'd bring up the, the experts, and he'd bring up the physicians, and he'd bring up the doctors, and he'd bring up the military commanders, and he'd bring up business leaders. And, and it was a daily briefing of, here's what's going on in our nation. He was informing us. 
Here's what's taking place. Here's what's going on in Washington, D.C. Here's what's going on in New York City. He still has briefings and our governor has briefings and, and thousands upon thousands of people watch him as he gives us an update. But God doesn't have to give us a daily briefing. God is at work. God is moving. God is working in ways that we cannot see. That's who our God is. He's working in unexpected ways, mysterious ways. He's working in ways that we would never fathom or imagine. But we can know that our God is doing thousands of things, again, not only in my life and in your life, but He's doing that across our nation. So the question is, what's He doing? We can look in the book of Judges here. As they're going through a very troubling time, a very difficult time, much like the time we're going through right now. And we see their story, is, and the story we're looking at here, is so full. There's a, a, so many casts and characters to look at. There's a thousand different things that we could chase. There's two chapters and 55 verses, and there's so much for us to see here. And just like in our nation, there's so much going on. I mean, in so many different corners, in so many different states. And it's, it's hard for us to, to look around in each situation and say, what's going on there? What's going on there? So what we want to do, as we're doing in Judges tonight, is dig just a little bit deeper into their terrible, crazy, ugly time. That's again, not much different than our time right now. And we need to look and see, what is God doing here? Out of all those things that's going on, and all those stories that, that we could read, and all the characters that we could follow... I got into chapter 4 and 5 and this is what I did. I want to find God. I want to see what God's doing. I don't want to study about a judge, Deborah. I don't want to study about a, a commander. I don't want to study about an evil nation. I don't want to hear about all their problems. We'll look at all those things. But my eyes in this chapter and in chapter 5 said, where is God here? And what is God doing in this nation? So when I read these 55 verses and these two chapters, the, the, the one thing just kept repeating over and over in my head, what's God doing? What's God doing? What's God doing? And I think that's how we need to look around in our world today and we need to say, what's God doing? What's God doing? What's God doing? And as we study these two chapters, I want to see that. I'm not going to show you a thousand things that He's doing. I'm not going to show you ten thousand things that He's doing. I want to show you five things that I found God doing in chapters 4 and 5. Here's what God is up to. Things we may not understand, things we may not see in our world today, but here is how God is working in the ugliness of this nation, and He could be doing these same things in the ugliness of our own nation. What is God up to in Israel? And again, we'll see that God works in ways that we can't understand. But He's always working. And He's always working it for our good. Always. Even when things are as bad as it can get. God is always working it for our good. And He's always working it for His glory. So that He might receive praise for what the end result is. So we can trust that. These things may not specifically be what He's doing in our nation, but I can tell you these three things. God is always working. God is always working for our good. And God will always, always, always receive glory for what He does. So we know that everything that He does is, is those three things. So let's look at it and let's see what's God up to. Again, I'm going to give you five things. Two chapters, five things. 
Hang with me. By the end of this, it'll just be me and you, Gracie. And I did take off my watch. No more, no calls tonight. I, I think we're going to put a, an article in the, in the Constitution of the church that says the pastor cannot wear a, a watch and get phone calls in the middle of a sermon. So I took off my watch. We, I don't know what time it is, and I'm not going to get any calls. So let's go ahead and look at this. What is God up to? Number one, God is punishing sin. That's what he's doing here. What is God doing? God is punishing sin. I call it the punishment of God. That's what he's up to. Look at it with me in verse 1. And the children of Israel, again, it happens again. They did evil in the sight of the Lord. They were doing what's right in their own eyes. I've said this multiple times. They were doing what they thought was right. But it was evil in God's eyes. They were doing what they wanted, not what God wanted. They thought it was right. God says it's evil. And they did evil again in the sight of the Lord. It's the same problem. Their problem here, and we need to understand this. This is not a main point, but their problem is not economic. Their problem is not social justice. Their problem is not racism, prejudice, and hatred. Their problem is not political. It's not a king that's ruling over them that they need to vote out. That wasn't their main problem. It was a problem. They had a political problem. They had a, an enemy. They had, uh, they had all kinds of social issues that they had going on there. But that was just minor problems. Their major problem was evil. That, that's, the, that's the problem. We, we've seen all kinds of hostile pagans that have taken over Israel. We've seen horrible tyrants. But the one enemy that is repeated over and over and over that remains the same, it's not the, he, the, the horrible tyrant or the hostile pagan. The one enemy that remains the same, every chapter that we turn to in the book of Judges, is the evil down in the depths of their heart. And that teaches us a very valuable lesson for our own nation. That our problem, if, if somebody was to ask you, what's America's greatest problem? You could give all kinds of ideas. You could say, well, it's the politicians. It's Donald Trump. Or it's, it, it's the, the Democrats. Or you could say it's a, a social justice issue. Or it's a racism issue. Or it's an economic issue. And you could give all kinds of, of big problems. You could say Russia. You could say Iran. You could say China. You could give all kinds of ideas. But the main problem that we have in America is not on the outside. It's on the inside. It's the evil in our hearts that is the, the cause of God's judgment that's what we see here this problem of evil is much more deadly and much more oppressive than any enemy so their main problem was evil america's main problem is the evil in our hearts and the only solution to an evil heart is the gospel of jesus christ it's not a new politician it's the same old gospel message politicians can't change a heart jesus can that's the problem. That's the problem that continually owned them. And that's the problem that caused God to punish them. If God is judging, if God is punishing America, it's because of the evil in America. That's why He's punishing them. Look what He did. Verse 2, And the Lord. See, I'm looking for God here. What's God doing? And the Lord. Underline the Lord. God did what? He judged them. He punished them. He sold them into the hands. He abandons them, sells them. That's what it is. He handed them over. Sold it. I don't want them anymore. It's yours. 
into the hands of Jabin. Here, take them, Jabin. And not just into Jabin, the king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, but the captain of whose host was Sisera. These two men will be key, Jabin and Sisera, which dwell in Harasheth of the Gentiles. He hands them over to the most vicious, relentless, and ruthless ruler you could ever imagine. He handed them over to an oppressive and enslaving ruler. It says down there in verse 3 that he mightily oppressed the children of Israel. He was powerful. He had an army unlike any army of that time. He had 900 iron chariots is what it says in verse 3. I mean, that's why it keeps showing us that to show just how powerful this nation was. Israel had ox goads and, and hidden knives for weapons. This King Jabin had 900 iron chariots. That's like us pulling out a pocket knife and going up against a tank. That's who, who he handed them over to. And how bad did it get? It says they spent 20 years being mightily oppressed or squeezed by this ruler. Verse 6 of chapter 5, I want to give you just a picture of it as we're going through this. It says, in the days of Shamgar the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, the highways were unoccupied and the travelers walked through byways. It was so bad and so evil that they couldn't get out of their houses for fear that they would be, have robbers come and steal all their things and kill them. They, 20 years they were afraid to go outside. 20 years they couldn't walk into the highways. 20 years they couldn't go into the streets. 20 years they couldn't go into the marketplaces out of, out of fear for this tyrant who was so vicious and relentless. 20 years their kids saw this. 20 years their kids were trained in this. God punishes them. Hands them over to an evil, vicious, relentless, and ruthless ruler. And says, here, have your way with them. So God is actively punishing Israel. It looks normal. It looks like they've just been taken over by an enemy army. Just a, just a normal eye looking at it would have said, they had ox goads and they had knives. And he had chariots of iron. That's an obvious winner there. He's going to win with the chariots of iron against a, a bunch of Israelites with knives and ox goads. So there's no way. This is just obvious. This is just common sense. But from the spiritual eye, looking at it in this way, we see that it was God who did that. It was God who handed them over. It was God who was actively causing this to happen. It was God who was punishing a nation. So to us, and I want to say this and move on, it may look like a pandemic. It may look like protests. It may look like politics as usual, but it may very well be that God is actively punishing America for its evil. To the normal common eye, it's just a sickness. It's just a rowdy bunch of people. It's just a bunch of crazy politicians. We've had them forever. It's just an economy that's about to crash. It's just churches that are getting shut down. It's no big deal. This stuff happens. But to the spiritual eye, if we're looking for it, we may be saying this is God punishing the evil in our nation. So number one, 
God is punishing evil. It's the punishment of God. Number two, not only is God punishing, but I want you to see that God is planning. I want to show you the plan of God. Because He has a plan to get them out of this. A plan before the foundations of the world that God has put together meticulously and wonderfully. Because our God is a brilliant and wise God and He puts together plans. And There's an old quote that says, if you want to make God laugh, tell Him your plans. Because your plans are nothing compared to God's plans. If we had a plan to, to get Israel out of this mess, how would we do it? It would just make it more of a mess. If we had a plan to get America out of this mess, and we all sit down and we had the greatest minds in the world to sit down and come up with a plan, here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do about the pandemic, and we've done that. Here's what we're going to do about the protests, and we've done that. Here's what we're going to do about our politicians, and we've done that. And none of it has worked. All of our plans have not worked, but God's plans always work. So what is God's plan? So it says in verse 3, that Israel cries unto the Lord, as they usually do. It took them 20 years, but they finally were driven to their knees. They finally said, we better go back to the prayer meeting. We better, we better repent here. We better stop doing what we were doing and turn back to God. I don't know when America's going to do that. We're still having our fun. We're still doing our, going back to our old ways and doing our same old things. When are we going to say, we better turn to God? Locusts. Sahara dust storms. Killer hornets. Ah, it's okay. Normal stuff, ain't it? So what does God do? Who do you think God's going to send? Verse 4. Here's His plan. God sends, verse 4, and Deborah. God sends Deborah. And I know what you're asking. Isn't that a girl's name? Yeah. This is God's plan. You have one of the mightiest armies in the history of the world with 900 chariots of iron. And God says, I'll get you out of this. You know how I'm going to get you out of it? I want to send a woman. Who is she? It says here, just look at verse 4 with me. She's a prophetess. And I've said this, God works in ways we can't see. And Deborah, a prophetess, which means she speaks on behalf of God. She is the mouthpiece of God. That God in this nation at this point is speaking through her. I think that's a testament to the men of that time about how bad this nation had become that God has no men to speak through that he's using a woman named Deborah. She is the mouthpiece of God. And not only is she the mouthpiece of God, but it says that she's a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and she judged Israel. She's a judge. And in this point, she is actually a judge in that she dwelt under a palm tree of Deborah. She had her own palm tree that she sat under that was named after her. And people repeatedly come to her and asked her to settle cases and, and to settle the disputes that they had. So she would go and sit under this palm tree, the Deborah palm tree. I would call it Little Debbie. No? Okay. Rice says no to that one. The little Debbie. And people would walk up to her and say, I've got a problem with this one. I've got a problem with this one. We've got a dispute in the family. And all these different things. And they bring them to her. And she was the wisdom that would say, here's who's right and here's who's wrong. So she's a prophetess. She's a judge. And chapter 5, verse 7 called her a mother of Israel. And she's a reliable, trustworthy, elderly woman who helps to settle disputes has wisdom. People can trust her. That's who God raises up. 
And I want you to understand that this is not, I don't want to spend any, much time on this, but I, I don't, this is not a, a passage that teaches us that women can be pastors or women can be preachers or that, that we have to have some kind of feminist movement in the church. There's all kinds of ideas that are out there. Because of Deborah, we can have women preachers. Because of Deborah, we can have women pastors. Because of Deborah, we need to, we need to vouch for feminism. That's not the case here. Any more than it is that we should carry a knife and stab fat people in the belly like last chapter. That's not what it's teaching here. It's teaching that God works in unexpected ways to deliver His people and accomplish His purpose. That's what's going on here. We have books in the New Testament that teaches us about the roles of women. This does not teach us anything about the roles of women in the church. I'm going to move on from that. This shows us that God is going to raise up and use an elderly woman to bring down 900 iron chariots so that God gets the most glory out of it. If he had picked the, the biggest and the strongest men in the nation and said, I'm picking these guys, then those guys would have got a little bit of glory. But he picks this little Debbie. Again, good name. Little Debbie. Little, little elderly Debbie. And says, I'm going to use her to go against 900 iron chariots so that everybody knows it wasn't little Debbie, it was God. God's got a plan. Maybe not a plan we'd use, but a perfect plan. And how does he do it? Watch what happens. Let me just read through it. Verse 6. And she, we'll keep calling her little Debbie, sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinam, out of Kadesh Naphtali, and said unto him, and Barak is one of the high leaders, high commanders of the time, and she called for him, the leader of Israel there, and she said in, in verse 6, uh, and said unto him, Hath not, get this, she's asking him a question, Hath not the Lord God of Israel commanded? Hasn't God told you, Barak? Hasn't God commanded you, Barak? Hasn't God said, Hey, you need to do this, Barak? So she calls him into her office and says, Listen up, buddy. Then God has told you to do something. Why ain't you done it? What's God told him to do? Saying, Go and draw toward Mount Tabor and take with thee 10,000 men of the children of Naphtali and of the children of Zebulon. And I will draw unto thee to the river of Kishon to Sarah, the captain of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his multitude, and I will deliver him into your hand. Didn't God tell you that, Barak? Yeah, God had promised that. God had commanded that. Didn't God say? Hasn't God told you? But Barak hasn't done it. Why? Why didn't Barak do it? There's different ideas of why Barak hadn't done it, but I think it's because Barak wasn't a very brave man. He was a cowardly man. You say, Josh, prove it. Read the next verse. And Barak said unto her, If thou wilt go with me, then I'll go. But if thou wilt not go with me, then I will not go. I ain't going unless you go, little Debbie. I ain't going unless you're by my side. There's some commentators that say that he's saying, I need God's woman beside me. I need God's voice, God's mouthpiece beside me. I cannot go without God. And that's a, that's a, that's a fine interpretation. But I don't think that's the way it is. Because the very next verse, little Debbie says this. And she said, I will surely go with you. Notwithstanding the journey that thou takest shall not be for thine honor. For the Lord shall sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So she looks at him and says, 
I'll go. But when we win, and we will win because God said so. Barak, you won't get none of the honor for it. You won't get none of the applause for it. You won't get none of the pats on the back for it. You won't get none of the glory for the battle. You won't come back into Israel with a parade and everybody cheering you on. You know who's going to get the glory? You know who's going to get the honor? It's going to be a woman, he says. She says. So in the middle of all this, God has a a plan. And God's plans aren't our plans. Again, if you want to make God laugh, tell Him your plans. Because God has a plan and He works in ways we can't see. God has chosen a woman. And God is using that woman to tell these men and this army what to do. She's going to lead them into battle. It's not what we would plan. It's not how we would do it. But that's how God decided to do it. In the middle of this mess, God had a plan. And you can look at our nation right now and you can say, I don't know what's going on. I don't know who God's going to use. I don't know who God's going to raise up. But we can trust that in the middle of this mess, our God has a plan. And it may not be what we expect it to be. And God may not use who we expect Him to use. And we can trust that no matter what, God has a mouthpiece in the midst of this generation. He has men who are standing up in pulpits and preaching the Word of God. God always has someone that is preaching to the generation. So we've seen God's plan. Let me now show you God's power. We're asking what God's doing. We've seen God punishing evil. We've seen His unexpected plan. I'm going to show you His power in delivering His people. The power He possesses, we could say. Look what He does. Verse 10, and Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh, and he went up with 10,000 men at his feet, and Deborah went up with him. I'm going to skip verse 11. We'll come back to it. So Barak goes up, gathers his 10,000 men, and he goes up into a mountain, Mount Tabor. 1,800 feet high. I drew a picture of it here, uh, of, a, of a tall mountain. That he goes up into this mountain 10, 000, or 1,800 feet high. And down in the valley below that mountain is Sisera and his men. Look what it says in verse 12. And they showed Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinam, was gone up to Mount Tabor. And Sisera gathered together all his chariots, even 900 chariots of iron, and all the people that were with him from Harasheth of the Gentiles under the river of Kishon. So now all of his, you can see the battle is now brewing and it's getting ready to start. And on the mountain, I want you to see this, on the mountain, here's who's on the mountain. On this mountain, Tabor, 1,800 feet into the mountain is 10,000 men, Deborah and the general Barak. So there they are in the mountain. And down below the mountain with all these 900 chariots and all these men of war with all of their weapons are the men of Sisera. And the men of Sisera with their chariots, they don't want to go up into the mountain because chariots don't do very well in the mountain. They need a flat valley down there in the bottom where they can ride around and they can use all their their weaponry and they can fight their battle circling around their their enemy. So they need to be down in the bottom. And and Barak and, and little Debbie are up there in the mountain somewhere. So where would you want to fight that battle at? 
If you're Barak, stay up in the mountain. If you're Sisera, stay down in the valley. Watch what happens. If, if I'm leading that army, I'm saying, don't go down there. There's 900 tanks down there. Verse 14. And Deborah said unto Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord hath delivered Sisera into thine hand. Is not the Lord gone out before thee? So Barak went down from the Mount Tabor and 10,000 men after him. So again, he's going down where the chariots of iron are. 10,000 men with knives and ox goats and little Debbie and Barak. And they're going down to fight these iron chariots. Mighty warriors. What do you think the odds are there? And again, this point is the power of God. What do you think the point? What do you think the, the, the odds are there? It looks helpless. It looks hopeless. It looks impossible. But that's exactly where God wants it to look. He wants it to look that way. He wants people to look and say, there's no way that little Israel can defeat this mighty army. There's no way that little Debbie and this coward Barak can go down there and defeat 900 chariots of iron. There's no way in the world, in our eyes, we're going to say, that can't happen. We know who's going to win that battle. But watch what happens. Barak goes down. Verse 14, here we go. And watch what it says in verse 15. We found God again. And the Lord discomfited. I like that old King James word. You say, what does it mean to discomfit? He routed. He destroyed. He crushed that army. You say, how did he do it? Look, look what it says. And the Lord crushed. He routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his hosts with the edge of the sword before Barak so that Sisera lighted down off his chariot and he fled away on foot. You say, how in the world did this army of Israel coming down off that mountain and going into this valley destroy all the chariots and all the people? That's a good question. How did God do it? Because God did it. How did God do it? Look with me, look with me in chapter 5, the song. It says in verse 4, Lord, when thou wentest out of Seir, when thou marchest out of the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped, the, the clouds also dropped water, and the mountains melted from before the Lord, even that Sinai from before the Lord God of Israel. Do you see that in those two verses? As Barak come down off that mountain with his army of 10,000 men, and they go down into the valley where there's no way they could defeat those iron chariots. No way. Their little swords could fight that. No way. And when they got down there in that valley, the rain started pouring down and the clouds dropped water everywhere. So that the chariot's wheels got stuck in the mud and couldn't go anywhere. So all those warriors had to get off of their chariots and made it possible for God's people 
to win the battle. I'll give you another verse. Verse 21. And the river of Kishon swept them away. That ancient river, the river Kishon. Oh, my soul, thou hast trodden down their strength. And she sang about it. She said, God brought down the rains, flooded the valley, and those chariots couldn't do nothing. So who did that? God did that. You look at it through natural eyes. And you're going to say, that's, that's luck. It just happened to rain on that day. <laughs> that's coincidence, Josh. That's happenstance. That's just good luck on their part. But verse 15 says, and the Lord crushed Sisera. And the Lord did it. God did it. God sent it. It's God's power. There are no coincidences. There is no happenstance. There is no such thing as luck. God in his power overcame that army. We don't know what God's doing or will do. But we know he has the power to get it done by any means necessary. And watch what happens to the general, Sisera. I've already said it. And he fled away on his feet. Again, He's showing himself to be a weak and cowardly man. That seems to be the theme of this passage. Barak looking at little Debbie and saying, I ain't going unless you go with me. And if you don't go with me, I ain't going. And then you have Sisera jumping off his chariot instead of dying with his men as they all fall by the sword and they're all going down. He takes off running like a sissy Sisera. No. Seems to be a theme here of weak and cowardly men in this generation that is falling away from God. And when it's one after the other after the other, and I'll show you another one, of men who aren't meeting their responsibilities, men who aren't leading their families, men who aren't leading their nations, men who aren't leading people to God, they're leading them away from God, men who won't stand up, men who keep backing down, cowardly men instead of courageous men. So Sarah takes off. And where does he run to? Let me show you how God already has this whole thing worked out. And that's my fourth point. I've shown you the punishment of God and the plan of God and the power of God in this. Now I want to show you the providence of God. And just so the young people that watch this understand, I mean that by my kids, Gracie's sitting here, providence is a word that means the secret hand of God. Where God's hand is moving things around like a chess piece. And we can't see it. But He is moves and moves and moves and moves ahead of us. That in His providence, He places things exactly where they need to be. So I want to show you His providence here. Go back to verse 11. We skipped that verse. This is not a throwaway verse. It's there on purpose. God is, and I love that. We have to go back to it. Because God is, here we are in verse 16. That's where we've been. Where Barak pursued the chariots and after the host and all of them. And by the edge of the sword, there wasn't a man left. But Sisera fled away in verse 17. And where does he go? Where does Sisera flee to? Where does he run to? He jumped off his chariot and run like a sissy Sisera. I'm going to keep saying that. He's sissy Sisera. 
He's running away. And where does he run to? Where does he hide? He goes and hides. Look what it says in verse 17. He has to find a place to hide so that he doesn't die like everybody else. Where does he hide? Look what it says in verse 17. He fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and of the house of Heber, the Kenite. You say, who in the world is Heber? And what's he doing there? Verse 11, you have to go back. God's put all this into place six or seven verses before this. God makes His plans before the foundation of the world. Providentially putting everything in place. He put Heber and Jael exactly where they needed to be so that Sissy Sisera could go running to them to hide. Okay, let's read verse 11. Now Heber, that's a good name. I need a nickname for Heber. Now Heber the Kenite, which was the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had severed himself from the Kenites, and he had pitched his tent into the plain of Zanum, which is by Kadesh. You say, what does that mean? Heber is a coward. He didn't want to be on the side of Israel and stay in Israel. He didn't want to be on the side of Sissy, Sissy Sisera. So he found him a place of neutrality. He found him a place out in the valley. He found him a place out where he could straddle the fence. Out where he could be at peace. And he didn't have to fight with Sissy Sisera. And he didn't have to fight with Barak. He didn't have to be on either one of the sides. He can just sit back and relax and have a comfortable life with his wife Jael. And he pitched his tent there and everything was peaceful and everything was fine. He was a, a coward. He was neutral. He wasn't for either side. That's a coward move. Another man who's unwilling to take a stand. That seems to be, again, the theme of these two chapters. These men aren't doing their job, so we got women that have to do it for them. That's what's going on here. It seems typical here that these are weak and wimpy men that are unwilling to lead. That is a characteristic of worsening times in a nation. Weak men. This might get me in trouble. There's feminists watching. I'm going to get in big trouble. I already got called a name earlier on Facebook. I might get more names tonight. But these are weak men. And any nation that's falling and going deeper down the, the slope of depravity and sin and evil will be a nation of weak men. And it is a characteristic of our nation and our time. We are raising soft boys that become soft men. We are raising thin-skinned boys who are becoming easily offended men. You say one word that they don't like and they're crying like babies. We are raising boys to become victims. We are raising boys who will grow up and do nothing but cry and complain. We are raising boys to be a bunch of babies. We are raising boys never to leave their mom and dad's basements. We are raising boys to play nothing but video games their entire life and never have a real job. 
We're raising boys who won't lead the home. We're raising boys who won't lead the church. We're raising boys who won't get their wife and get their kids and say, hey, we're going to church today. We're raising men who would rather tear down a statue in a square in a city than tear down the idols in their home. And I'm not talking about little sissy men. I'm talking about men who look like men who won't be men. That's what we have in our nation today. Won't work. Won't stand. We're raising a bunch of Hebrews. A bunch of sissy Ciceras. And I'm not talking again about skinny jean men. I'm talking about men who refuse to lead their family the way God tells them to lead their family. We need strong men in our nation again to stand up and to lead the way. And I'm not talking about leading the way politically or socially or racially or economically. We need men to stand up and lead their family spiritually. Biblically. That's what we need. This was a nation with weak men and we are a nation with weak men and we need to be a nation of strong men again. Men of the Word. Men of God. Men who lead their families and raise children to be men and women of God. That's what we need. These were weak men. So Sarah was a weak man. Heber was a weak man. Barak, I know he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, but he was a weak man. We need strong men. He said, Josh, you're ranting. It's biblical. It's a chapter of weak men. No wonder these women have to stand up. So Hebrews playing both sides. Hebrews taking a knee. I'll bow to this side and I'll bow to this side. Who do you want me to bow to next? Weak. Weak, weak. But again, back to the main point. God's been putting all this together. Every bit of it. Back to verse 11. He moved out into the, to the valley. Out near the river Kishon. Out where the battle's taking place. So he can be in the middle. And he pitched his tent out there. Him and his wife. J.L. So that when Sisera fled away from battle, where did he go? As he's running away, little sissy Sisera, he found him a tent. And he goes running into that tent. Just so happens that there's a tent out there. Who put the tent there? Heber made the decision, but God made the move. Verse 17, so... So Sarah fled away on his feet to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite. For there was peace. You see that? There was comfort. There was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. Everything was comfortable between them. He's, he's neutral. And Jael went out to meet. The, there's the wife, Jael. She went out to meet Sarah and said unto him, Heber's not home. I don't know where Heber's at. I don't even know that it tells me where Heber's at. But he's not home. He's left Jael in the tent by herself. He left Jael there, but God put Jael there. 
This is a providence of God. We don't see that hand, but He's moving and shaking everything. That's what God's doing in America right now. We don't see it, and people are making their own minds up and doing their own things, but God is the one that's moving and shaking by His providence, moving all the pieces exactly where they need to be. So He's put, get this, He's put Sissy Sisera in that tent, and He moved Heber and Jael to that spot, so that they could meet in the valley. So Sissy says, Sarah goes into the tent. And there's Jael in the tent. And you say, what's going to happen here? I know you're on the edges of your seat. We're just, just waiting for this. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said unto him, Turn in, my Lord. Turn in to me. Fear not. She said, come on in. Don't be afraid. Come, come on in. Come on into the tent. I'll hide you. They'll never find you here. Again, God put her there on purpose. Turn in, my Lord. Turn in to me. Fear not. And when he, you guys are probably reading ahead. Don't do that just yet. Hang with me. You don't fast forward to the end of a movie. Don't read ahead here. And when he had turned into her, in under her into the tent, she covered him with a mantle. She put a blanket on him. Oh, how sweet. What a nice woman. Jael's so nice. She's such a sweetheart. <laughs> and he said unto her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. Look how sweet Jael is. Again, Heber's not home. It's just Sissy Sisera and Jael in this tent. He says, Can I have some water? I've been running away from battle. I'm a coward. And she doesn't give him any water. Look what she does. And she opened a bottle of milk and she gave him a drink. And covered him up. Tucked him in. Oh, here's your little bit of warm milk. I'll tuck you into bed. It'll be great. Again, he said unto her, Stand in the door of the tent, and it shall be when any, anybody comes looking for me and inquires of thee, say, Is there any man here? That thou shalt say, No, he's not in here. Good plan. I'll take a nap. <laughs> Drinking my milk, covered up, laying down. You watch the door. What a coward. What a coward. What a weak man. I'll have my little milk in a blanket. You watch the door. And watch what happens. Then Jael, Heber's wife. <laughs> this is all providentially happening. She had a blanket. She had milk. She had everything. This is all working out. This is all God setting it up. Get this before I even tell it. Back earlier on in chapter 4, Deborah told Barak, when you go to battle, God's going to give all the honor to a woman. And when we read that, in your mind you're thinking, God's going to give all that honor to Deb Deborah. But here's who God's really given the honor to. To Jael. Watch. God's in all this. And Jael, Heber's wife, took a nail of the tent and took a hammer in her hand and went softly unto him, sneaking. Nail, hammer. And she smote the nail into his temples and fastened it into the ground while he was fast asleep and weary. And I have no idea why God said to add those last three words 
Because it's like, really? So he died. This sweet little woman. Get this. God used a sweet little housewife in a tent in the middle of the valley to defeat the leader of a 900 iron chariot army. And God had providentially put every single piece of the puzzle together. Did you see that coming? I didn't when I read it. I had to read it again. Nail? Temple? Hammer? The nail went through this temple, out this temple, into the ground. He was laying on his side. And now he is nailed to the ground? Wow! Sissy Cicera got what was coming to him. Verse 22. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said unto him, Come, and I will show thee the man whom you're looking for. And when he came into her tent, behold, Sisera lay dead, and the nail was in his temples. And God delivered Israel from the hands of a mighty army with chariots with a housewife holding a hammer. There she stood with a hammer. And God defeated a whole army with a housewife and a hammer. We don't often see what God's doing or what God's up to, but right now, God is providentially putting all the pieces in place to accomplish His purpose. I'm going to say that again, and I've got to hurry. We don't see it, and we may not understand it, we may not know it, it may not be visible to us. But right now, God is providentially in America putting all the pieces in place exactly where they need to be in order for Him to accomplish what He set out to do. He's the one who puts the leaders in office, He's the one that guides and directs and puts and allows and causes. Our God's hand is in everything. And He's doing it to accomplish His number one goal. And that's the last point. That God is doing it to get praise. What's God doing right now? He's putting everything together so that in the end, He gets the most glory out of it. I said that at the beginning, that God is always active, that God is always doing it, whatever He's doing that we may not even see, but He's always doing it for the good of His people, which He's done here. He's delivered His people. He's done very good by His people. And number three, I said He's always working, He's always doing good, and He's always doing it for His own glory. That is His number one concern. He is the most glorious being in the world, and He's working everything out to get Him the most glory. Israel and its army doesn't get glory out of this. God gets glory out of this. I love this. It says, it says in verse 23, so God, you see that? God did that. He subdued on the day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel prospered and prevailed against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Who did that? God did that. God punished. God planned. God promised. God powerfully delivered. And now God gets all the glory for it. 
That's what all of chapter 5 is about. All the story of God working it out. Chapter 5, you've got Deborah and Barak coming together to sing a duet of praise unto God. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but look at verse 1. Then sang Deborah, Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinam, on that day, saying, look at verse 2, what did they say? Look at it. Praise ye the Lord for avenging Israel when the people willingly offered themselves. Hear ye, O kings, give ear, O ye princes. I, even I, will sing unto the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. God is giving Himself the most glory out of this. What is God doing in America? He's putting it all together so that in the end, He gets all the glory for it. Whatever it is He's doing. I love that. God delivered. God got them out of it. And God gets all the glory. We know that's how it's going to end. God will get glory out of it. So now we have a physical deliverance from Israel's enemies. But not a spiritual deliverance from evil. That's what this is. God physically delivered them from their enemies. But He did not spiritually deliver them from evil. That took a different nail. That took an unexpected cross. Where God punished evil. You, you get me? Charles Spurgeon said, just like every road leads to Rome, every passage leads straight to the cross of Jesus Christ. Where God punished evil. On the cross on His Son. Where God had a plan from the foundations of the world. Where God made a promise. Where God showed great power. Where God providentially put the kings and the rulers and the leaders in place. Where God had everything planned out to get His Son to the cross. So that a nail didn't go through His temple but went through His hands and His feet. So that He could deliver His people not from his, their enemies. But from the evil that beset them deep down in their hearts. See, this nation will continue to fall into evil and fall into evil and fall into evil because they continually get delivered from enemies. But what our nation needs is not deliverance from our enemies, but deliverance from evil. And the only way that will ever happen is if they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and the cross. That's the only way. God and on the cross was punishing evil planning it all throughout with great power, with great providence, so that the, at the end of looking at the cross, who gets the most glory out of the cross? It's not me and it's not you. There will be nobody in heaven saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. It will be everybody in heaven saying, look at him, praise God, praise God, praise God. So that the end result of our salvation is praise unto God. So understand that I'm closing. The hero of judges is God. We've got these two screens behind me back here. And I, I put pictures together and try to make it look well and be uh, what our series is going through. And there was one we, put, we was getting ready to put on there that said, the unlikely heroes of judges. I, I liked it, but I looked at Grace and I said, we can't use that one. It's not the unlikely heroes of judges. It's one hero of judges, and that is God. 
He's the true judge. He's the true savior. He's the central character. And our God will accomplish salvation through unexpected ways and nothing can stop him. He will be glorified. I'm going to say this in closing. John Calvin said this. All the universe is but a theater to display the glory of God. What a quote. And we can see it if we just look close enough. And when you can't see it, we trust these three things. God is at work. God is working it all for our good. And God will get glory out of it. Whatever God's doing in our nation, whatever God's up to in our nation, and we know he's up to something, it's going to end in good for us and glory for him. That's what God's up to. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word tonight. I know it was long. I know it was a difficult study to go through this passage. But I think it showed you in greater light. This was a theological sermon. This was a God-centered sermon. And God, I'm thankful for that. We need to have our eyes on you. Right now, more so than ever. That we turn our eyes to you. And not be overwhelmed by the circumstances of life. But we could trust God. I love that. That our God is in control. Our God is sovereign. Our God is up to something. And that's in our nation. That's in our church. And that's in our personal lives. You are always doing 10,000 things. And I'm thankful to be aware of one or two of them. So we trust you, Father. That you are a good God. And we give you glory for all that you do for us. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.